you have the ability, I'd love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Titus chapter number 1. Titus chapter number 1 this morning. We've been a little bit all over the place the last month or so for different reasons. Of course, a couple of weeks there, um, deterred from just loss and people filling in and just uh, preaching what the Lord had been accomplishing in my heart. Uh, we returned to the book of Mark, which was where we've been for the last year and a half or so, um, and bringing that to a close. Uh, but this week, I'd like to draw our attention to Titus um, for a number of reasons, um, but particularly because in recent days, the topic of elders and deacons has, has arisen again in the life of our church, and I'd like to give a few weeks to this topic of eldership, and um, I think it would be beneficial to us to have the teaching and preaching of God's Word uh, before our eyes and in our hearts as we seek to um, seek the Lord's will in it, and ordaining elders and deacons and seeking those men out, training those men up or appointing those men, and that it would do us some great benefit, um, possibly some truths that you already know. That's fine. Um, oftentimes we need to be reminded. And the Lord often um, renews a reality in our hearts or teaches us a new truth or reminds us of an old one um, that is uh, emphasized and taken to deeper levels. And that's what I'm, I'm praying uh, this morning. And um, we may get through it in a few weeks, return to our uh, Easter festivities in the book of Mark, um, which is always a blessing. And if the Lord uh, wills and we need to, we'll pick back up um, after this. But I think it's something that we need to, to address and, and needs to be at the forefront of our minds um, as we seek the Lord's will for, for this church. Um, so if you don't mind and you're able, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. And we'll pick up our, our reading in verse number one. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. But the emphasis this morning is simply going to be on verse number five. Verse number one, you read these words. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge and, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but as in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus a true son in our common faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, 
not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Let us pray. Father, again, we come to you simply because we need you. We need you now. Father, we need you now to take the word of God and press it upon our hearts. Father, we need you to enliven each of us, whether it's me, Father, in the giving of the word or those under the sound of my voice in the receiving of it. Father, we recognize that it's a supernatural word and is only accomplished by you. Father, the spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So, Father, we pray that the spirit of God would just take it um, and utilize it, Father, for, his, for, for, for the Father's glory. For the Son's glory, may you exalt the Son in it. Father, may you exalt the Son in our hearts. Lord, we, um, we pray that, that each and every person here, Father, would receive it well. Um, but also, Father, that it would be given well. Father, that you'd help us to be faithful. Father, that you'd utilize it in each of our lives, Father, and as a corporate body to honor you in all things. Lord, we love your church. We know we only love your church because we love your son. We know that it's his bride, Father. And just like our brides, we're called to care for her well. So, Lord, um, would you lead us and guide us into all truth, truth, Father, and how we are to um, order um, the house of God. Father, we know that it is of utmost importance to you, and thus it should be of utmost importance to us. That we shouldn't just be, um, we shouldn't just be caught up with the mechanical order, but for the reasons by which you've ordered it the way that you have. Father, not only are we called to believe that, but I think we're called to love that. So this morning, Father, would you help us to love the truth, not only know it but to revel in the majesty and the glory of your Son and what he's accomplished in our bride. May that undergird our care for her. So Help us to care for her well this morning. Help us to care for the truth this well, well this morning. And help us, Father, to love and serve and honor you um, as we receive your word. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. going to talk about eldership and the way that God orders his church. Titus is a perfect book to go to. It's not the only book, but particularly 1 Timothy and Titus are probably two of the premier books. Not, not to mention, and not to forget, um, the book of Acts, um, as well as 1 Peter, um, who all deal explicitly with the topic of um, ordering God's family, and particularly the, um, the topic of eldership and the deaconate and or the diaconate, however you want to want to say that. Um, but this morning, I want our, our launching pad for the discussion to originate here in the book of Titus. Titus is a disciple and a representative of the apostle himself, Paul. Of course, you all know Paul. We all know Paul. That great apostle to the Gentiles whom God blessed with revelation, power that was just simply unique to him. 
Yet at the same time, he left an example to the church of God throughout the ages. And what a blessing that is. Paul's journey began, just to remind you, years earlier as he was converted on the road called Damascus. And it was truly a unique experience. He was gloriously saved, eternally changed, and ultimately fit for the ministry of God, particularly to the Gentiles. He would be a church planter or a missionary, and he would serve functionally as an elder in many of the churches that he would plant. He would train men, he would leave those men in place, and he would move on to accomplish a new work. Even the book of Romans, you can see his desire that he desires not to build upon another man's foundation, but he was a pioneer spirit um, given to him by the very spirit of God in which he would go and desired to go into Spain, uh, essentially to the uttermost parts of the earth, and reach the unreached people groups um, with the very word of God. Paul was a single man in the ministry, no wife or children, yet, um, yet, yet part of his ministry was that he had many sons in the faith. Um, Timothy was one of those men, um, and we, we, we learned that from his epistles, but Titus was as well. Um, he was a son in, in the faith. And that's what he says in verse number four, quote, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. And the letter is addressed to Titus, Why? To instruct him in the specific work that Paul left him to do. Verse number 5. For this reason, he says, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I have commanded you. And then he goes on to say, if a man is, and he lays out the qualifications, the, those things that a man must be, if he's going to hold the position or the office of, of an elder. The idea is, is that Paul, in some point of his ministry, has been ministering the gospel to the Gentile world, and in doing so, he's establishing, strengthening, confirming churches. And it's hard to exactly say how these churches in Crete originated. It would have been part of the Gentile world. But what we do know is that they're there. Um, it could have been through Paul's ministry. Um, it could have been uh, from Acts chapter number 2 and the day of Pentecost. Uh, when, when essentially the whole world hears the gospel and the Jewish people, as they come home, um, back for that, that great celebration at Pentecost. And they take, they, they, they hear the word of God through Peter in their own language, and they take the word of God and the gospel back to their synagogues. And churches are no doubt established um, through that single effort in Acts chapter number um, 2. And what, but, but, so, so we don't know exactly how they originated, but what we do know is that Paul's aware of them. Paul has visited them, and Paul desires to help these congregations. It's not more than one congregation. It's a number of congregations, it seems. And in his assessment, he recognizes many issues among the churches. Verse number 10, there's many insubordinate, idle talkers. There's deceivers, especially of the Jewish religion, whose mouths must be stopped. Why? Because they subvert entire households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Many who profess to know God, the scripture says, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Clearly the behavior unbecoming of Christian men and women was creeping within the congregations. And that's exactly why we see Paul give instructions in chapter 2 on what men ought to be and what women ought to be and what the older men and the older women ought to be teaching the younger men and the younger women. Chapter 3, he reinforces how they're to respond to some of these men in chapter 1, these divisive men. Uh, they are to uh, avoid certain things that are unprofitable and useless. And he says, reject a divisive man in Titus chapter number 3 after the first and second admonition. 
The question is, is what's Paul's solution to the problem? That's really one of the great questions of the book of Titus, as well as Timothy and many other places. The primary reason that Titus has left in Crete, Paul to move on, is to quote verse number 5, set in order the things that are lacking. The phrase there, set in order, is, is one word in the original language, and it's a medical term um, in the Greek culture. I mean, its primary base is the, the, the word ortho. You probably recognize that from the medical practice orthopedics. It deals with bones. It's combined with um, a, a, a prefix, epi, which means upon or on or over against. It's generally a word that speaks of position. And together it means to set right. Um, to set right. It, it, it's ortho, orthodox, orthodoxy, the right opinion. Um, what, what, what Paul is leaving Titus there to do is to set things right. As in the case of setting a bone. You've got a broken bone or a bone that's out of socket. Something's wrong. Something's lacking, which renders it useless or defective. The goal of the physician is to set it right that it may be healthy and ultimately useful. One of the primary themes, it seems to be, throughout the book of uh, uh, Titus, this little letter, is, is, is that, that, that term health, hygiene. With, uh, one, of, one of the original words that is often used here, the word sound, is, uh, it speaks of sound doctrine, is, is health, it's, it's hygiene. You use, you're seeing a lot of these medical terminologies that speak of strength and health and, and particularly usefulness. That's really what I want to get across. I think that's really what Paul desires to get across, not only here but other places. That, that really the goal in ordering the church is not to order it in and of itself, but order it for a purpose. And for the purpose of usefulness. There's some healthy people out there running 10 miles a day, you know, eating uh, seven days a week bird food for dinner for the sake of health and image and perception of simply looking good. And honestly, it's a waste. You think, man, what a waste. It's useless. In some sense, they're useless. They're these creatures made in the image of God for a purpose, and the body um, becomes this idol in which they worship, and it's to be a vessel in which they're given to carry that thing out, that, that purpose out, that usefulness out, and it's imperative that we care for it for the sake of godliness and the sake of usefulness, not simply to care for it for the sake of caring for it. You know, the reality is, is that, yes, we should take care of our bodies and we should be healthy men and healthy women and we should train our children up to be healthy young men and healthy young women. Why? So that we would be greater vessels to carry out the purpose that God has intended to, for us to do. The reality is, is that many of us cannot do what we would even desire to do or what God would desire for us to do because we have this impediment of a lack of health. And had we taken better care of ourselves or had we um, went through strength training or exercise or, or cardio uh, pulmonary health and, and, and focused in on these things, that we would be much better agents in the kingdom of God. That's the reality. That if we're going to be healthy, you're healthy for a purpose, not for simple health's sake because you're afraid of dying or for selfish gain or for this or that. It's the same in the church. You know, it's the same here. You're not simply to order the church simply to look good. We're not simply to order the church for ordering its sake. We, we are to order the church rightly because God has ordained it to be ordered for a particular purpose. So what Paul is saying here 
is that there is some activity within the body that's unhealthy, that is attacking the body, rendering it unhealthy and useless to perform its God-given role. All right, Paul, Titus, what do you want me to do? You want me to go in and let them have it? I can set them straight. Tell them where they can go. No, I want you to appoint appoint elders in every city. That's the remedy. I mean, I'm not supposed to field complaints, teach them coping strategies on how to get get on and get along, employee sensitivity training for six weeks so that they know how to carry themselves with all of the differences. They're just supposed to let bygones be bygones and move on. No, you are to appoint elders in every city. They need leadership. Not only leadership, they need pastoral care. They need shared male leadership to govern and care for the flock of God. Where do we find these men? They're there. They're there. You'll appoint men that meet these qualifications, and they'll be the means by which I govern and preserve my church. False teaching, what do we do? You need elders. Misconduct, what do you do? You need elders. Misguided understanding related to to ignorance or a lack of knowledge, you need elders. Wolves in the church, elders. That's the plan. The church needs godly leadership. It needs men. We need men. 2,000 years later, the need has not changed. We need godly men for the health of the church, for the health of our body, and for usefulness in the kingdom of God. This simply wasn't an issue unique to Crete. It doesn't take you long when you read the New Testament to discern that although God was mightily at work in many of the churches throughout the Middle East and in the hearts of men, these were people that were at least, uh, at the very least, were often, uh, were often misguided and needed redirection, or they were just outright sinful and needed rebuke, correction, and restoration. Now, whether you read the disciples under the tutelage of Christ himself, um, you read of the New Testament churches. There were people whose attitudes were often out of control, sinful appetite, strong and unreserved, and need some, in need of some, some spiritual, serious spiritual encouragement. Uh, Peter was often out of line with his speech, even denying the Lord three times. James and John are portrayed often as prideful as they quarrel over the best seats. The New Testament epistles are filled with references of problems within the church. And problem people within the church. I mean, 1 Corinthians, read that one. I'm sure that most of you have, but if you haven't, wow, you know? Like, along with it, it just brings a catalog of sins that, that, that if you were to ask us today, that the standard of, of, of that church, we'd look at it and we'd say, man, that church is apostate. There were divisions in the church, cliques, factions, and they were suing one another in the courts. They were abusing the Lord's table. Drunkenness and gluttony were running wild sexual misbehavior, not even spoken of among the pagans, misuses and abuses of spiritual gifts, superiority complexes. I mean, you name it, Paul greets them like, but yet, yet Paul greets them like this, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to the saints. With all who in every place call to the, on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. 
And you think, man, really, Paul? Like, you know their sins. You know what you're about to write. Either they're completely lost and apostate, or they're seriously immature in Christ. Babes with no one to change their diapers, feed them the sincere milk of the word, and teach them ultimately how to be men. Men of God, that is. The leadership seems ineffective, to say the least, or absent altogether. They need some instruction. What do they need? They need instruction from Paul. So he gives it. This isn't true simply in Crete or in the New Testament churches. It's not unique even to that age. It's true in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel was led by Moses out of the land of Egypt and eventually led by a plurality of men that they called elders. If you were to turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 1, you would read of one particular episode. Moses has exited the land of Egypt with the people of God. The text tells us that he's on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness in the land of Moab. And while he's there, he begins to explain, once again, the law of God. Hence the name of the book Deuteronomy. It literally means second law. And it's not that he's giving a second law. It's that he's speaking the law again, a second time. It's not exactly the same, but... Most sermons generally aren't exactly the same, but but carry with the same substance. Not only was there law, but there was also narrative there, historical um, uh, data for us to glean from. And that's what we read particularly in in chapter number 1, verses 9 through 15. You read this, and I spoke to you at that time saying, I alone am not able to bear you. The Lord your God is multiplying you. And here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are. and Bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and burdens and your complaints? Choose wise understanding and knowledgeable men from among your tribes and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you. Leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers of your tribes. There was a need for leadership. It was a blessing. It got to a point that God had blessed so much and multiplied the people that he prayed for more blessings. He recognized, though, that the burdens and the complaints could not be handled by him alone. So he put leaders in place to care for the nation. It was simply because it was, and it was simply, it wasn't because it was too hard or difficult, or he didn't like the job anymore, but that people might be cared for properly. It could be easy to say, oh, like he, he didn't want to hear the complaints anymore. So he delegated those to somebody else that, you know, could hear the complaints and he only had to deal with the really bad ones if it were needed. But the reality was that it was just too much for one man to bear. And as the nation grew, There were capable men that were raised up, wise and knowledgeable, the text says, that he placed over them. In some sense, there was a need for them. We see something similar in Acts chapter 6 in the New Testament. The apostles established new leaders within the church as the need arises. Why? Not because they don't want to care for the Gentile widows, but because they do. They understand that to leave their primary duty to serve widows would detract from their primary task, which was the ministry of the word and, and prayer. So they ordained men in the church 
to care for the load. And in essence, to care for the widows. And there was a shared leadership. It was a shared male leadership between elders and deacons. Particularly the apostles there. But what you're going to find in the New Testament is that the apostles would leave the same pattern for the elders. You would see that, 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 that they, would be, they, they would be going off the scene. And as the apostles were going off the scene, elders were being established in churches um, to where Paul could, could say um, to Timothy at one point, you know, um, that, that Paul had taught t- uh, Timothy and Timothy had taught faithful men and faithful men were to teach others. That that's the pattern throughout the church. We receive our example and we receive our pattern and we receive our doctrine from apostolic authority um, grounded in the person, nature, and work of Jesus Christ. And we are to pass that down providentially and somewhat miraculously throughout the ages that now 2,000 years removed we we can have the same doctrine and the same pattern. That the pattern is that there are issues within the local assembly um, and the, the issues are to be cared for particularly through the eldership and through the deacons and through the men, godly men within the church. And again, this isn't just New Testament pattern. It's, it's different than Old Testament, but it seems to be the pattern throughout um, the Testaments and throughout history. Later you would see, later after Moses, you would see God establish, as we talked about this morning in the Sunday school hour, judges. Eventually he would move to kings. That there would be authority um, over the people to rule the people in every area of life. Listen, this was even true prior to all of that. You know, uh, the need for leadership was inherent in the original design. As you open up the book of Genesis, what you find is that in its original creation, particularly the family, you see Adam created then Eve. You see them given a mandate, and contained within that mandate was order. But it was not simply order for order's sake. It wasn't just genders for the sake of gender. Um, nor is it today, you know? There's a war on gender even today, you know? And the way that people want to make it sound is that it's simply platonic. You know, it's, not, it's without an agenda. It's labile. Uh, there's a recent interview with a conservative man that you know, had a gender expert on the panel. And he asked, one, and he asked the one defending you know, the truth, reality, you know, why do you even care after all the discussion? Why do you even care? You know? And the implication that they were trying to get at is, I mean, why does it even bother you? Like, why do you even care? It, it doesn't pertain to you. Let bygones be bygones. Let people be people. Like, it doesn't affect you. That's usually the argument with things like homosexuality and love relationships outside the bounds of marriage. I mean, it doesn't affect you. Why do you even care? Like, and I can't answer for him, but I'll answer for me because it matters. Truth matters. And it matters not even simply because truth matters in an objective sense, although that's true. It matters because God ordained it, but at the same time, it's more than that. The question would be, why did God ordain it? God ordained it for a purpose. And it's not arbitrary that God orders things the way that He orders them, you know? Uh, God ordained the gender for a purpose and the ordering of the home for a particular purpose. And not only is it God's design for gender at stake, but His mission. That's the point. You know, that that, that when the order is 
inverted or it's androgynous and flattened out to where there is no order at all, but everything is exactly the same. You, you, you take the inherency of the design and you just cast it totally out. You destroy the mission. Why? Because it has a purpose. Remember, it's not good that man be alone. Thus Eve is made for him a helper for what? For his mandate. To be fruitful, to multiply, to take dominion, to spread the image. It's actually impossible without her. Adam, there's a degree of impotence without her. You need her. God made her for you. He ordered the family such that without her, you cannot be fruitful, multiply, and spread image and take dominion throughout all the earth. So one writer comments, he says, the gender war is not between the genders. It's on the genders. Gender itself is under siege. Um, Consider Warren Farrell, he says. Although he's widely regarded as the father of the men's movement, he actually advocates that there should be neither a women's movement blaming men nor a men's movement blaming women, but a gender liberation movement freeing both sexes from the rigid roles of the past toward more flexible roles for the future. Or in pithier words of a feminist, Gloria Steinem, we need to raise boys more like we raise girls. Why though, he says. It's simple. These people rightly see that sexual distinctions are a source of conflict. And that's true. Absent unity with, the th- with and through God, the divisions built into creation divide. That's true. Rebelling, rebelling against God and His order does not eliminate that need for redemption and perfection. And so their solution to achieve this redemption and perfection is to get rid of the source of conflicts, hence to get rid of the sexes themselves. If we, could, if we can mush the genders into a homogenous humanity, there will be no more divisions, no more tensions, No more conflict. And so girls are taught to be more masculine because masculine achievements are the ones that matter. Boys to be more feminine because the masculine nature is toxic and disgusting. Contrary to Genesis 1, 26 through 31, they grow up believing that it's not good to be their sex. And he finishes it like this. He says, they therefore have no clue how to live as God designed them. The enemy of our day is not male versus female misogyny, or female versus male misandry, the enemy of our day is androgyny. Humanity spurred on by the devil versus sexual distinctions. And later he goes on to say the devil hates fruitfulness. He'll do whatever he can to create barrenness. And he knows that blurring the genders and turning the sexes against each other is a highly effective strategy. By sowing division between both God and man and man and woman, Satan undermines the ordering principle of the cosmos, the household. When he divides man from God, he separates the household from its telos or its end, its goal. Um, Building God's kingdom and establishing his rule on earth. When he divides man from woman, he frustrates the cooperation necessary to construct households in the first place. He wars against the patriarchy in heaven by warring against the patriarchy down here on earth. It is Satan's dominion versus God's dominion, end quote. You see, the point is, That order is not arbitrary. It's not to be tinkered with by man. It's inherent in God's design because it's inherent in his character and nature. And chaos and confusion, which could also almost be defined as a lack of order, and is at its worst demonic. At its best, it's misguided and in need of reform. And in the beginning, what do you see? You You see God, an orderly God. 
A universe without form and void. And what does God do? He separates and feels. He separates and feels. He separates and feels. Ordering the cosmos. Why? Because He has a plan for it. There's something going to be accomplished in it. It's not arbitrary. He creates the family and He orders it. Why? Because He has a plan for it and a purpose for it. It's not arbitrary. Um, Not only is it not arbitrary... But it's by design for a purpose, and that purpose is not merely about keeping people from sinning. It's about attaining a common God-given goal. That you were made for a purpose. Adam, Eve, take dominion, be fruitful, multiply, plant, cultivate, spread image, serve God. You know, the order is inverted, and chaos ensues. God instructs man, man leads woman. Woman aids man. In common purpose, take dominion over creation. Adam and Eve, what happens? Creation in the form of a serpent takes dominion over woman. Woman's deceived, usurps man's authority. Man rebels against God, man falls. Man blames woman, woman blames serpent. Ultimately, man blames God because God gave him woman as a gift. And what do we have? Confusion, chaos. Why? Because of disorder. Authority matters. Order matters. When it's inverted, androgynous, or clearly just absent, it's chaotic, it's confusing, it's of the devil, and nothing gets accomplished for the glory of God or its original purpose. And that's not only true with the family. I mean, that is true with the family. You know, and it's not only recognized from biblical scholars and Christians throughout the ages. I mean, data's coming in from secularists today that beyond a shadow of a doubt can see that there is a need for reform within the American culture, particularly within the family. Why? Because when the family falls apart, society falls apart. You know, that, 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 that within the sexual revolution and within the homosexual revolution, what you've seen is just the, the, the entirety of the family destroyed. And who suffers? Not only that family, but generations to follow. You know, boys, men, uh, boys without fathers... Boys without mothers, even within a mother-father home. Why? Because now they're androgynous. They've, they've, they've lowered the lines and they've raised the others to make them um, indistinctive. But this is not how God ordained it. And even secular psychologists and doctors and, and just, just people in general are recognizing the, 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 the tragic ramifications of such actions. You know, they don't know what to do with it because they will not... They will not go back to what they see as the um, binding slavery upon their life, a, a husband-wife relationship, and a family. They won't do it. They, won't, they, they, they admit that something's wrong, but they don't believe that the solution is to go back to God's design. Thus, they'll pursue other things um, as they cast off lawlessly God's original design. This is happening even within the church. Um, and it's dangerous, you know? It's extremely dangerous. Um, I know that even today, most churches have an issue with things like homosexuality, the transgender movement, and a hundred other issues. Man, we'll harp on those all day long. Let me just inform us today that that was born out of a feminist agenda. You know, decades ago, it began with what seemed to be um, likely or uh, progressive movements toward a much more uh, amiable and personable society in which we 
favor one another and want to allow for certain differences and allow some to come up and some to come down. And, and it's almost even the, the bedrock for socialism and the social justice movement even today. It was born in, the, in, in an ideology, an ideology of, 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 of a feministic mindset in which uh, that was the, the, the bedrock and the, and, the, and the ground level of, of moving towards what we see today. It could not have been accomplished otherwise. There's no way in the world to, 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 to get an entire society to accept homosexuality, the transgender movement, even what we've seen within the last decade of just... Of just, just Garbage spewing out of the mouth of, of many of the most in, seemingly intelligent people in the world, you know, who deny just inherent reality that, that, that this ship wasn't built overnight. It was built plank by plank. The house was built brick by brick, brick over, over decades. And now it's being shipped down the sea and it's being uh, lived in the home of American culture. And you ask why? Because they inverted this. They sought to lower uh, standards, to, to homogenize every single thing, to remove clear distinctions between man and woman. And now um, it was upon that that this was built. And now generations are being born in which, um, if you were to, to mention you know, to, to, to a generation coming after me and after that, something of this nature or just biblical design, um, they would scoff and mock um, overtly. What does this have to do with the church, <laughs> right? Order. Titus set things in order. God is an orderly God. It's not only necessary to the family, but to the church, to the church. Titus set things in order. Something's lacking. It's wrong. And if things aren't set in place and it's not designed appropriately, um, it'll all fall apart. And that's what you see now happening in the church, um, in the churches in Crete. The false doctrines going forth, whole households are being subverted. I know we read that and we just pass by it, but what you're seeing here are men and women coming into the homes of God's people, those for whom he bought, you know, his, his blood he, he died for. And what you see is those particularly of the circumcision and these other men and women coming in and subverting entire households, leading them away astray from God. This is no small error. You know, this is no tiny offense. What's the solution? Set things in order. What does that mean? Appoint men, godly men, elders to lead the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 14, let all things be done decently and in order. 1 Timothy 3, 15, I write to you that you may know how to, you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. He said, I write these things. Why? So that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. That's on the, what things? 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications of an elder, the qualifications of a deacon. I'm writing these things to you so that you know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. That, that, that that's what he means when he says that, not just simply how you're to carry yourself within the house of God, to be respectful and other things. This is how God's church is to be ordered. Um, this is how you are to... To, to care for the bride of Christ, the pillar and the ground of truth. That order matters. 
Leadership matters. It's necessary. And it's not simply to keep sinners from sinning. It's inherent in God's original creation prior to fall to accomplish a particular purpose in which He had mandated humanity. You know? Because what, what, what some people have today is in, in, in respect of an idea as to leadership within the church or eldership is that you know, this guy is, is simply there to, to make sure and to preach on sin and to make sure that we don't you know, do anything that's wrong. That you keep your eyes pure and you keep your uh, you know, uh, skirt length long enough and various things. And, that, and, that's, that's, and that's relative and that's part of it, but that's not just it. It is so that we would be useful within the kingdom of God to build kingdom and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That, that, that elders are not simply are, are here, yes, to, 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 to restrain sin and to preach and to teach uh, primarily and to counsel and, and in various other forms of ministry to restrain the evil um, that is in, in our hearts. But at the same time, it is to raise up, it is to disciple, it is to nurture, and it is to, to, to bring people to maturity so that we can engage the world, the culture, and the nations for the cause of Christ. That there is a purpose for which this church exists. Um, so what's the solution? Elders. Elders. And that's what he says in... Titus chapter number one, appoint elders. Elders, you know? What is an elder? Well, there's, we could spend all day on that. But essentially, the term itself speaks of maturity. You understand the term elder or elderly. Um, you probably use it daily, if not weekly. Um, but it speaks of someone older, generally. Um, but in the scriptures, it doesn't appear to be used so much for physical maturity as much as it is for spiritual maturity. But the reality is, is that generally speaking, both come together. That what type of, that if the solution is elders, what do we mean by elders, right? We speak of spiritually mature men who are gifted and given to the church as a gift, but gifted by God for the care of the flock and of the word of of God. Does it simply speak of an age? Not necessarily, you know. If the Apostle Paul, particularly in 1 Timothy or Titus, wanted to put an age on it, he could have. But he doesn't. You say, well, that's an argument from silence. Not, not necessarily. Because actually in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he puts an age on something. On the widows in whom we are to care for as a church. Two chapters earlier, he doesn't mention an age at all. Um, he does speak, though, he does somewhat put a caveat on that, that one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that he is not to be a new convert. Um, the implication is, is that the new convert does not have the character or the maturity with, to withstand the devil's temptations. He needs time and age. But the reason being that character is often the result of wisdom gained and applied in the difficulties of, of life. That generally, it's true, you read the Proverbs, you read the Scriptures, you just live life. <laughs> Maturity generally comes with age, and it comes with time. But there's no quick method. There's no shortcuts. Um, elder, uh, maturity is not like a TV dinner that can be nuked in two minutes. It, it takes time. It's a garden. 
It's soil that needs tilled, it's watered, um, that needs cultivated, it needs weeded, it needs protected from pest, it, it endures through the weather. Sometimes it fails and you have to do it again next season. It, um, it, it takes time. That's, that's the emphasis here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as well as in Titus chapter number 1. The emphasis is on a man who has character. And we'll look at the qualifications another Lord's Day. Uh, Lord willing, but just to make the emphasis today that he's a man that's mature, he's cultivated, and his life is ordered, you know, it's ordered, and it's not ordered necessarily in the sense of he's got all of his days and weeks planned out in, in detail, but that his inner man is ordered, it's under control, it's not subject to the circumstances of life. Um, when things come in, it's, like a, it's, like a, it's not like a tempest sea in which he cannot control himself and he reacts in such a way that his anger is out of control, but he has control of his inner man. And that's the point of, of Titus and Timothy, to, to emphasize the qualities of a man that are within, um, that, 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 that this man is a man to be followed. Um, it's a man who has such character that a man could look at him and say, I could learn from him. Or I could say to someone else, look at him and follow him. He's a man worthy to be followed. We're speaking of men with what, what we might refer to as gravitas, weight, a manly glory, not equal to the glory of God, but originates from it. Men who carry a significant weight in their lives that produces an earned respect. It's not their ultimate goal in their lives, but in pursuit of the glory of God, that's the result. Gravitas. Weight, respect, born out of a fear of God. Now there's problems in the church, Titus, and it's in every church. This church was born out of, probably out of Pentecost. Um, there's, there's a lack of order. They simply didn't know, maybe. Or there, you know, there are a number of reasons. They're out of order. You need to set it in. What do you need? You need men. You need, but not just any man. You need men of maturity. You need men um, who can teach. You need men who, who are the example. You need men, um, Titus says in Titus 2 and verse number 2, um, the older men are to teach the younger men that they be grave. It's the idea of gravitas. This requires spiritual fathers, the growth of the church. Which is why Paul tells Titus to instruct the older men to be grave. It doesn't mean something like just deathly serious and the inability to laugh, but rather, um, he knows when to be deathly serious and he knows when to laugh. He's been instructed by wisdom and experience and, and, and work and life so much, and, and particularly through the, the wisdom of God that he understands the situation and scenarios, and he knows when to be afraid and he knows when not to. He knows when to laugh and scoff and mock, and he knows when to take things um, gravely. Or in the words of Calvin, there should be a becoming gravity upon this man in the lives of elder men, which should compel the young men to be like them, or to be modest, or to be self-controlled. Speaks of a man that is of a spiritual weight, of these that should be, there's somewhat of a gravitational pull that draws younger men into a nearer orbit with God. Um, one writer writes this, he says, of this gravity itself is a useful analogy it pulls things into their proper place it brings and maintains order if it were to cease we would all start floating helplessly our solar system would be reduced to chaotic chunks of rock spinning wildly into the void so it is with gravitas 
It establishes order and regularity. Without it, our cosmos fails into disorder and chaos. End quote. Because gravitas, it comes from God. The only way to get it is by making a practice of, of, of living and honoring and serving and meditating on the very glory of God. It's the fruit of imaging God. It's the glory and weight of God with feet on it. It's the result of having settled in your Christian identity as a man uh, an understanding of what God requires of a man. And particularly what God requires of you. And at the end of the day, that's all that truly matters. You know? That when you have a, a group of men and with a lack of self-control and it's androgynous and you do what you want and you do what you want, what you end up with is chaos. You end up with division and you end up with confusion. You end up with uh, generally utter destruction. What do we need, Paul, Titus? You me tell you what you need. You need some men that will hold this thing together. You know, and they just don't hold it together by a tyrannical rule or a dictatorship. They hold it together by the very character that is wrought into them by God such that young men see that and they gravitate towards that. It's like a young boy. Um, it's, it's like my boys, you know. It's like my boys. Who just by very nature, the world just revolves around me. And I think why, you know. But it's inherent in them to gravitate towards somebody. You know, and God has put it into them to gravitate towards that man in their life. The problem is, is that oftentimes we as men shun them because we're too busy. You know, we have too much to do. They're too much of a burden. So what do they do? They, they often seek and gravitate towards other men. And if they can't find a man, what do they do? They gravitate towards their peers. And they learn from their peers and they seek approval from their peers. And, and they look for ethics and morals in their peers. And that's why we have what we have today. You know, I'm reminded of, of 1 Kings chapter number 12, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And Solomon is dead, and now they're going to carry on the kingdom. What does the king do? He, he goes to the elders to seek their counsel, but he rejects it. And the scripture says there, but, but he asked his peers what he should do. And he rejected the elders' counsel. And in seeking after the peers, it led to their demise. You know? The churches are going to be built in some sense on the foundation of men, godly men, in whom the other men will gravitate towards, not because they epically demand it. And it's the same within the home. You know, what are you going to find that in the qualifications of an elder, in the leading of a home, and in the, 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 um, the, the, the governing of your children, that they are to be in subjection, that they are to be um, ruled well, but it's not, it's not a simple tyranny, you know? It's similar to Christ and his bride. You know, Christ, it's amazing that he's not a tyrannical ruler or a dictator, but his very presence among us commands respect because of the type of man that he is. The way that he carries himself, you just, you, you, if, if you ever, in some sense, presence the very, or sense the presence of God, you'll be like Isaiah, you'll be like Jeremiah, you'll be like John the Revelator that falls upon his face. No word is spoken, but the type of man that he is is the type of man in which you just, you just stand up and follow, even if all you can see is the very hem of his garment, that he carries himself in such a way that it, that, that it demands respect, but not in, a, not in a tyrannical dictator type of way, but there's just something about him that just makes you want to follow. It's reminiscent of John. 
As he writes in his gospel, at one point, all are abandoning Christ. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, do you want to go too? And you say, with them, where else would we go, Lord? You are the one who has eternal life. Like at any moment, you're welcome to leave. I'm not holding you here. I'm not binding you to something. You're not enslaved to me like chattel slavery. You know, but there is a sense in which we are slaves to Christ and bound to Him by love. There's a way in which that He He is, He simply is His character, His nature. That once you get a, a glimpse of it, who else in the world would we follow? You know, and you are to follow me. And in that example of Christ, and as you cling to Him, and you cling to the Word, and you cling to the Spirit, and you seek to to to, to set aside um, the worldly frivolities and the flippant um, things of life, and you begin to tear down idols and raise up God upon the throne of your heart, other men will see, and they will gravitate towards you. And what we should do is not, like we often do with our children, push them aside because we don't have time. But we should live life together, make time for those men, as as, as men before us have made time for us, to bring them into our lives that they too might learn what it is to be a man. You know, it's it's, it's such a need in a fatherless generation. You know, like I come from a fatherless home. I can remember coming into Christianity, not having a clue, my left hand from my right doctrinally, not what a man was supposed to be, not what a father was supposed to be, you know, and I'm just looking at other men. I looked at my peers. I remember early in the early days, you know, I'm just, I can tell you of one particular, I just looked at him and I thought, like, I don't know what a relationship's supposed to be. And I don't even, I can't even tell you uh, where the book of Habakkuk is in my Bible. I couldn't find uh, Revelation, you know, <laughs> Revelation in Genesis was about it. I couldn't have found Titus or Philemon or, or even, even navigated to the Gospels. But, but, but I looked at some men and I thought, and I, you could just clearly see God blessing their lives and God upon their lives. You could tell that they had been with the Savior, that God had just poured out His Spirit upon them. And in some sense, um, as Paul encourages us to Him, following my example as I follow Christ, um, I just, just inadvertently and without, 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 um, without instruction, I just began to look at men. You know? And they began to teach me. Sometimes what a man is and man should be and what a man isn't and what a man shouldn't be. But there was a certain level of gravitas to their lives, you know, and such that, yes, you don't tyrannically dictate, but through that earned respect of a godly life in Christ Jesus, filled with the very Spirit of God, what it did was added weight to that life, but also weight to His words, you know, that that's the type of man in which you can receive instruction from, even when you don't fully understand it. But that's the type of man in which when correction comes, I'm not immediately offended. Um, but take stock of my own life and ask, is there something that's lacking within, within me? That's the type of man that you can trust. That's the type of man that's he's got it together in his heart and in his mind. He's not trying to please you and he's not trying to please other men. Um, he operates off of biblical principles. When nobody's looking, he's compelled by God to come to you. And thus you receive it joyfully and gladly. 
And even though it hurts, may God give us some men like this. This is what we need. Not only to show us where we failed, but also to show us where we need to go. You know? Not only to show us our immaturity, but to show us what maturity looks like. Not only to show us the way of the devil and stay away from that land, but also to show us, as Moses did, we need some men to take us into the promised land. You know? We're on this side of the Jordan, and it's becoming too much. You know? That there's a shared leadership that is just inherent in God's design, whether it's in the home with a husband and wife, or it's within government, or it's in there's a representative authority. And as God blesses, more men is needed. You know, I look around and I see we just added 30 chairs this week. You know, I mean it's still almost full. God's blessing has come on this church in some sense. We've not done everything right, and there's a thing a lot of things I probably need to do different. You know. Um, you calculate it, that's about 30 families. The Lord blesses. He'll bring more. I get emails weekly from people in this area and other areas. And, and um, you know, things fall apart weekly. <laughs> I mean, there's problems, there's issues. And there's more things that need to be done. You know, there's more discipleship that needs to, be, that needs to go on. Um, there's more evangelism that needs to take place. You know, there's more counseling that needs to be done. Um, some of you look around and you don't have a clue that the lives that are hanging on by a thread, marriages that need help, you know, people that will die this week or next week, family that need attended to, people to rejoice with, people to weep with, and the time and the counsel and just that it needs, you know. I'm not complaining. <laughs> to God be the glory. I'm just saying we need more men. And some of you are those men, and I thank God for that. Um, but it's more than just maturity. What you also find, and we don't have time for, I mean, it's fullness. What you find also in 1 Peter chapter number 5 is that this is a particular type of man that shepherd the flock of God. In that, in that 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 5, you see particularly three phrases or three words that are used to describe the office of an elder. The elder is one of those. And the work of the eldership is primarily the task of feeding the flock of God um, through the word of God and being that man, that example, the very embodiment of the word of God. Let me tell you, that's a daunting task. And that is, <laughs> that is something that, that you even bring up to a man. And, and, and who is worthy, you know? And yet at the same time, we recognize that, that, that God um, gifts men with the church to be that and enables those men by His grace to be what He desires for them to be. Not utterly perfect, but to be mature. To be men that are worthy to be followed. That example, um, godly maturity, godly manhood, and godly faith and godly repentance. A man that's got a control of his life. He's got a, a, a definite direction of his life. And, and ultimately that's the glory of God. And it's playing itself out by means in his life that are tangible. You can see it in his family. You can see it in his life. You can see it in his work. Those are the men that we need to help govern the church. But it's more than that. There's also somewhat of a, um, a, a, a recognized weight of responsibility as you take on the official position of an elder to shepherd the flock of God. That's the second phrase, to shepherd the flock of God. But it takes pastoral care or it takes um, recognized responsibility that you look at this congregation and you say they're Christ's but they're mine. You know? 
Um, you're mine. That you're entrusted with the flock of God as a steward, a general manager. You recognize that it's not yours, but it is. You know, the First Timothy 3, 5 says, um, that, that, that I write to you that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. But this is God's house. The pillar in the ground of truth. But at the same time, so you're caring for God's house. Acts chapter 20 and verse 25 says, and indeed, Paul is writing to, or he's speaking to the elders there at Ephesus as he's going away. And he says that he had preached the kingdom of God and that he had testified that he was innocent of the blood of all men. And I think it's verse number 27 or 28 that says, Therefore take heed to yourselves, he's talking to the elders, and all the flock, and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That there is a, a weight of responsibility that is laid upon not just mature men, but particular mature men um, who, are, who are compelled by God to take care in a, in a, in a shared male leadership role, um, the very care of the church. Such that you can say faithfully, reverently, and in some sense joyfully, with Hebrews 13, 17, that you will one day give an account for those souls. That's what he says. He says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. These aren't just mature men, but these are no less than mature men. These aren't just men with gravitas, but, but as men gravitate towards them, and they've taken upon themselves the responsibility and the accountability of these men's souls. You know? And there's a weight that comes with that. Because Ezekiel chapter 34, I don't have time to go there, but if you read that, what you see is the account of shepherds who don't. You know? They don't care for the weak. They don't care for the needy. They don't care for the show. They don't feed the sheep. He says, my sheep. You know? Acts chapter number 20, um, he says that, that, that we are to care for those whom Christ bought with his own blood, purchased with his own blood. And that we are just stewards and managers of God's household and the accounting of his, uh, over the souls of men, but they're not ours, they're his. And that there will come a day of reckoning against good shepherds, good under-shepherds, and, and bad shepherds, bad under-shepherds, in which an account will be given. And reward or judgment will be meted out either in this life or in the next. Definitely um, in the next. That as we care for God's flock, we realize that we can't do anything and everything that we want with the flock. We can't serve the flock for ourselves. We can't serve the flock um, to, to, to receive the accolades of men. They're not ours. They're His. They were purchased by His blood. We are stewards of God's mysteries and stewards of God's flock. And thus we are to care for all the flock. Everyone. Which is one of the reasons that we practice membership here at this church. I need to know who I'm accountable for. I need to know who. God will hold me accountable for one day. And you need to know who your pastor is. You need to know 
um, that I am here for you and that I'm laboring for you and that I'm caring for you in all of my incapabilities. But at the same time, I need to know who to pursue. Because the reality is, is that one day I will stand before God and all the men throughout the ages and every generation will stand and give an account for the, for the responsibility that they took for the caring of the flock. And that's a weighty thing. Thus, it's only a thing that should be taken upon their shoulders by mature men. Um, men who understand the weight of the role. Men who operate with joy because in some sense we've been called and chosen. That's what Acts chapter 20 says, that you have been called by the Holy Spirit. That the very Spirit of God works and operates in your life um, to, 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 to move you to such a fulfillment of that responsibility. Thus you do it with the utmost joy. That's what Hebrews says. That you can do it with joy. Let me tell you what a joy it is. What a joy it is. But what sobering work it is as well. But that's what he means by overseeing. It's not just like a father peeking around the corner to make sure that their children aren't disobeying. It's oversight of the work and of God's house. It's for a purpose. It's not only to make sure that they're not doing what's wrong, but it's also to train them up to do what's right, you know. It's not enough for you to just give your children orders and then you know, expect them to do it without training them. And then you go back and you just lose it because, you know, um, because they weren't doing what you told them to do. You know, and they should respect you. They should. You should also be the type of man and woman whom they respect. And you should train them. You should teach them why. And you should give them purpose. You should give them goals. You should give them expectations. They should know what, to be, what is expected of them. You know? They should know what they're reaching after. And it's the same way here that we have a task to do here in this congregation, in this church. God has outlined it. Those who take the office of overseer, bishop, elder, um, shepherd, pastor, um, Ephesians chapter number 4, that, that shepherd pastor is for the work of, of, of perfecting the saints, for the equipping of ministry, that that's the aim, that that's the goal. You know? And without it, without them, Without the order within the church, without elders and without deacons, um, we're lacking. We're lacking, you know. And as the church grows, what it may, what it means is it makes subject to sheep getting lost. You know, Part of the reason of the, the emphasis of, of going full-time recently are more elders or more deacons um, is because I'm not sure that I can care for all the flock myself. And that's not to guilt trip anybody into saying, I'll do it. Because if God's not, you know, giving us the men, then, then we wait. And then we trust Him to sustain us. But at the same time, there's an emphasis uh, laid upon Titus. You set things in order. You know? That there is a trusting in the very Spirit of God, but that trusting is not throw your hands down and just trust the Lord, you know, let go and let God. No, it's managing the household well. It's discipling men. You know, it's, it's bringing men along. It's encouraging men in the ministry. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a child, you know? It's like a child. 
You ever thought about why God gave you children? Really? I didn't think about it until like three. <laughs> I'll just be honest with you. I had no clue. You know, for most people, it's just, you know, and that's why people think we're crazy. You know, you have six kids and thinking about another one pregnant, and they just look at you cross-eyed. And maybe, maybe they should. Maybe we are. But at some point, um, you know, it's almost like they, they think you're just doing it to be happy, you know. Like, you need one more to make. And that's why I think why most people have kids. They just do it because it's a thing to do. seems like the next fulfilling step in life. They have one or two, and they, they move on. At some point, we thought, man, God wants us to have children to raise them up for his glory, you know. Like shape these little arrows, send them into the world uh, for the cause of Christ. This is our responsibility. We'll be accountable to God for that one day, you know. Um, I told you before, I've just got flack before it, you know, like, why in the world would you bring uh, children into this world in, in a God-forsaken state, you know? Um, why would you, why would you, why would you uh, subject your children to, to such a godless culture? And, like, and I'm thinking, like, total opposite. Like, if the culture is the way that it is, and God tells me what children are, and God tells me what he'll do in the blessing of the, those who raise up their children for the glory of God, and God saves them, like, this is exactly what we need, you know? Like, more children to be raised up and discipled. To be sent out into the world, not just house fillers or fulfillment, or to make us happy. Because on a lot of days, they don't. It's hard. It's difficult. It's tough, you know? Um, on many days, you, 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 without them, the, the burden would be light, it seems, right? Like, but at the same time, it's a joy, you know? At the same time, it's a blessing. And to teach them to be a blessing to others and to, to raise them up and to present the gospel to them and try to be an example. And as they gravitate towards you, you see God in them, the hope of glory. And you think, man, what could we do with more of this in the world? And that's our prayer for them. And that's our hope for them, that they would come to the glories of Christ. And that they would be changed and they would be raised up to be sent out into the world. You know, and that, 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 that's a purpose. That's, that's, that's the purpose gives us the, 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 the mental fortitude and the spiritual fortitude to move forward. There's a reason in this. You know, and it's the same in the church. Why are we here? What are we doing? You know, God, give us more, but at the same time, give us more men to raise up. Give us more men that will come along. A brotherhood that in the midst of warfare will bind arms and move together with purpose to care for the flock of God. To reach out into the world and, and to see people saved and changed and babes in Christ come in and disciple them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and do the same. You know? Like that's what we want. That's what I want. I think that's what the Bible teaches. I think this is God's design. It's His household. I'm just the manager. I'm not just saying that we need men. I'm saying I need men. Men that are not only mature and have gravitas, but men who are willing and capable and desirous to take um, the accountability of this church, the care of the whole flock of God. Such that sheep aren't lost. Such that they aren't not, they're not discipled. Um, such that they are raised up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and given clear direction in life and godliness. May God give us some men, not only to restrain the sin in our lives and in the life of this church, but also such that we can ensure that the work God has entrusted us with can be done tangibly in this community and throughout all the world. You know, we order was given 
for a purpose. And it shouldn't be flipped on its head. And it shouldn't be neglected. And it shouldn't be absent. If so, chaos will ensue. And self-destruction is an inevitability. But when God builds the house, whether it's the home or the house of God, and it's ordered appropriately, um, it doesn't mean that difficulties will cease. But I am convinced that it means that God will bless. So may God give us some men. Some men like this. Not a class of spiritual elite or a special case. You know, but men. And isn't that really the, I know some of you are thinking like, I'm safe. (laughs) I'm safe today. He's talking about pastors and elders. I'm good. No. I see you're missing the whole point. The point is, is that this is the design of all men. Paul is not speaking of to Titus, a special elite group of men, but, but what all men are to be. You know, these men are simply to be the example, the men that other men gravitate towards, that they can't hide from, that if they're going to be a part of this church, they have to look at, you know, day in and day out. And in some senses, they reflect upon the word of God and the glory of God in the scriptures and the very person of Christ. They look in this man and they see that they're wrong with God because of the character that he carries. Not that he flaunts it, but simply because of who he is. You ever met a man like that? You ever met a man where you just knew that's a man that's godly. That's a man that's reverent. There's certain things I'm never going to do in front of this man because of that. That's a man that makes me want to be like him. But more than that, it's a man that makes me want to be like God. You know? Unless he's able to speak into your life openly and freely. And God just uses him in a mighty way. Listen, man, that's what you're to be to your boys and your girls. And that's what you're to be to other men in the church. I'm telling you, without it, Lawlessness and fruitlessness and utter destruction will be our end. Let us be men. As we look to Christ, and this isn't, again, this is not about us. This is about Christ and us, the hope of glory, and Him manifesting the fruit of His work in those whom He has saved, such that it is a light to a lost and a dying world. This is, I'm convinced, what Christ was like. And either you loved Him or you hated Him. But either way, you respected him. You know? And it either caused you to shun God more, or it caused you to cling to him. Where are these men? I'm convinced they're here. I'm convinced some of you are. Not perfect men. Humble men. Men still with room to grow. That have grown leaps and bounds. And are worthy of other men to follow. That's what we're looking for. That's our men able and capable to lead and to teach. Um, because Christ has so led and taught them. May our prayer be that God give us these men. Acts chapter 15, uh, 14, I think it's verse number 23. Paul and Barnabas, I believe it was, was appointing elders in the cities. And it said, after much prayer and fasting, they did it. I want to encourage you to pray and to fast as we look for men like this, seek to train up men like this. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glories of Christ. We thank you for the privilege it is, Lord.
to simply serve you in whatever capacity that is. Lord, we're just sinners saved by grace. Father, I just pray that you'd impress upon the people this morning the, the character of Christ. It's easy for us to just take a sermon like that and push it to sign because it doesn't specifically speak to us, whether men or women who are not in the office. Um, but really, this is the character that you desire of all of us. You desire for all of us to be the type of man and the type of woman who teach others, if not only by word, also by deed. Um, and Father, you deserve that devotion. Father, you deserve our whole lives. You almost think, who's worthy? None of us are. Yet at the same time, you recognize the only life worth living is the one that Jesus purchased. And that's a life completely devoted to you. And while that's hard on some days, seemingly impossible, we just lean on God's grace. Your grace, Father. That's able and sufficient to carry us through. So we revel in that, Father. Not in our own accolades or rewards. Not in any fruit of the Spirit, Father. Um, as we wave that over men. But recognize that if anything good has been born in us, it's simply by the grace of God. According to the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we cling to that more. God, as we pursue men um, in this church to order things right, Father, um, would you just give us clear direction? Um, and would you give us unity? Would you help us, Father, to, to, to train up more men or that in this setting, Father, cultivate more men and that would have such character? And if the Lord would lead, um, give them clear direction that what they're to do with their life, Father, may not be the only thing, but one of the things is, is to care for the flock of God. Recognize it as their responsibility, in which one day they'll be accountable to God for. And as sobering that is, what a joy. What a joy it is to serve in any capacity. Father, it would have been glorious if you had made me a toe <laughs> for the kingdom of God. You know, clothed in... Veiled for all my life, but if in any way benefited the body and ultimately the head, what a blessing to be forgotten. So Lord, um, lead us now in all areas of life, but particularly in this issue. Give us a heart of prayer, a heart of fasting, a heart of need for direction and discernment. Give our church unity, Father and how to move forward. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.